Psalm 30, verse 4 through 5 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. We always begin our time together um, with Scripture, and our call to worship today from Psalm 30 is no different. It's a reminder to us, when we, whether we're gathering together physically here in this location where I'm, I'm broadcasting today from the church sanctuary, or whether you're gathered in your homes. The church is gathered historically in many, many different ways. But in our call to worship from Scripture itself is God's words. It's a reminder to us that God is the one that initiates with us. And that's actually very poignant for our message today. I'm not going to get into it just yet. We wanna, I want to go over a few announcements, but just remember that. God is the one, independently of us, independently of anything that we've done, that we've earned, that we've asked for, independently, God himself who is completely and totally other than us, condescends himself, and he is the one that initiates with us. It is because he first loved us that we love him. And we see this over and over in Scripture. We'll see it in the sermon in a moment, that God is the one that initiates with us, and that we, in gratefulness for his presence and for who he is, respond to that. And so we gather this morning, and I'm so glad that you are here, at God's gracious invitation for us to gather together. And if you are online right now, um, I'm, I'm glad if you're watching this later, but it is an incredible encouragement. It is actually a biblical call that we gather together, even if it's digitally. And so if you're here with us right now online, please say something in the comments. Please say hello. This is a, a time right now for, this is like if we were in person together, where people would just be taking their seats and getting their coffee from the coffee bar in the back and just getting settled. So please take a moment, say hello to one another. Scripture says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And it's always an encouragement for us as pastors to see your names and to, to see the words again. Some of you we get to see face to face from time to time on Zoom and things like that, but it is it is an encouragement. It is part of the Spirit gathering us together at the same time on Sunday mornings. And so all that to say thank you so much, and thank you for saying the things in the comments and saying hello. Um, let me just go over a couple of announcements, the, just so you know what's kind of still going on in the life of the church. We continue to be very active in ministry, with, even with everything that's going on. One thing I do really want to point out to you is that um, if you... If you're not signed up for our, our uh, digital content, please go to our website, newhopekent.org. Make sure that you're getting that weekly newsletter. Uh, we're calling it The Loop so that you can stay in the loop with everything that is going on, especially as we're making the corner here on summer and looking into the fall for our ministries. And there's going to be a lot of announcements, a lot of new things that are coming down the pipe. One of those things is the um, officer recommendation forms. This is really just for members of our church, but it's so important that I wanted to take a moment right now at the beginning of our time together on Sunday to, to explain to you what that is. We are Presbyterian, and I could spend a lot of time talking about what that means, but um, one of the things that that means it's the, is it describes the way in which we govern ourselves. And we are governed by ordained officers, and when I say ordained officers, what I mean is people that have been set apart for a, for a period of active service, um, and actually for their, their lives in the church to serve in a specific way. And elders serve in a ruling capacity. They are the ones that gather, and we talk about the session from time to time, that gather together and make the overall uh, structural decisions about the church. They are in many ways the, the governance the, the, the top line of, of, at least on the church level, of the governance of our church. And then the deacons, who I'm proud to get to be a moderator of and get to spend time with, the deacons are those officers, people that have been set apart for ministry, specifically focused on the compassion and heart and caring for our congregation and the surrounding community. So we have elders and deacons, and they each serve three years term. Once you're a deacon, you're always a deacon, but serving on the deacon board and serving on the elder board 
is a, a three-year term. And so when you go and you look at that form, and, a, and as a reminder, this is just for members of the church. If you are a member of the church, then we're asking you to participate in this, um, discerning who God is calling to lead us in this next class of officers. And I know last year I had just come on board, and I remember there was a little bit of confusion going on about how this process works. But please check, check your, um, your weekly loop uh, that was posted last week. It gives you a link there to, um, to that officer recommendation form, which will explain everything. But just as a reminder, just because someone is eligible to serve another term doesn't mean that they will automatically be nominated to serve another term. And so basically, at least two families, is my understanding, need to nominate that person if they would like them to be considered by the nominating committee as a committee of the congregation that you, you we all as a, as a congregation elected back at our last annual congregational meeting. And that committee is chaired by Elder Greg Bagenstoss. Um, again, the loop has all this information. I just really wanted to highlight how important it is for you to participate in this, especially given last year we had some, some confusion about it. Um, the other thing I want to make sure that you're aware of is, again, this is on our website, newhopekent.org. If you haven't been there yet, it's a brand new website we just came out with this summer. Um, thank you so much to Joy Cauldron for getting that done. But go there. We're really encouraging everyone to take the digital course called Discover New Hope. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that that usually was the, the time with Pastor Tommy uh, that you, we would spend right after the worship service together. And it's a way to get to know who we are as a church, what we believe, how you connect. Uh, so if you're a new person and you want to learn more about who we are, that's fantastic. But as, as Pastor Tommy said before he went on vacation and his, his weekly update, it's also a way for all of us to be on the same page together as we try to adapt and as we try to reach the communities around us. So again, if you are a member and you have never been through Discover New Hope, please, please sign up and go and take that course um, so that we're all on the same page, that we're all of the same mind, that we all have the same mission together. We really want to make sure that everyone gets a chance to take that course. If you have any troubles at all with anything, please don't hesitate to contact me, Samuel at newhopekent.org. I'm the steward of a lot of these digital processes. Um, the other thing, of course, is please submit prayer requests. There's all these things are on the website. If you want to get our newsletter uh, so you know what's going on, if you want to uh, see the rec officer recommendation, everything is in that weekly newsletter. And so you need to sign up for that on the website. Um, and also on the website as well is a place where you can submit prayer requests. Please let us pray for you. Please, whether you are a believer or not a believer, we want to pray with you. We want to be with you during this time. That's enough of the announcements. I've gone way too long on that. Pastor Tommy's not sitting over there to kind of reel me in, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to calm back. But there's a lot of other things that are going on. Again, get in there and, and see what's going on. At this point, uh, we're going to turn now to our sermon for today as we continue our series that is in this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, and today, we look at the next chapter that is based on this passage in Genesis. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 11, but this is right after Noah's flood. And this one is called A Giant Staircase to Heaven. And if so if you remember last time uh, when Pastor Tommy was preaching, he was talking about the flood. And basically what had happened was... Uh, sin and sin and sin had increased and increased and increased and the corruption was going rampant. And so what we see is God intervened. And so this is now after the flood, we actually see that something similar but with a different take uh, happens. In, in previously, what happened when God intervened with the flood was that we saw that human nature we saw that human nature was evil and it was getting corrupted and that it was becoming worse and worse as time went on and as people moved further and further away from God. In this case, in our story today, in this part of the Bible, um, there's a number of things going on. One is part of the redemptive story, and it is basically laying the groundwork for where after humanity made it through this flood episode, it began to multiply again and spread into these nations. And the chapter right before this is called the Table of Nations. And the story that we listen to today in chapter 11 of Genesis is that of called the Tower of Babel. And so in redemptive history, this is a very important moment for where the nations are formed. And as we continue through this, this series, you will see that 
God has a special place in his heart for the nations, for different peoples and for different languages, and that this is going to be a theme that is being begun right here in Genesis 11. It's going to continue for the rest of Scripture. But basically what has happened is something very similar to before the flood, where the flood was focused on human corruption and sin and God intervening, God coming to rescue the situation. We have something similar in the sense that God, again, intervenes. God rescues. God comes down and is the savior of the situation. You might not see that at first glance. Um, But in this case, it's different. Before the flood, it was humanity um, and and the degradation of human nature. Here, what we're really seeing is that humanity has taken it to a whole new level by, by not just being degraded themselves in their own passions, their own desires, um, being focused on themselves, but in this case, they, it's an actual affront upon God himself because they try to remake God into their own image. So that's what we're going to look today at, two, mainly two points, God creating us how we have created God in our image in this moment in history, and then also um, how God intervenes, how God takes, God comes down into our mess, into our moment, and, make, and makes an alteration in the, hist- in the course of his human history so that um, ultimately he can rescue us and that we can come home to him. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 11, And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We're mainly going to be looking at verses, I think, 1 through 9. And um, I'm going to start with verse, yeah, 1 through 9. I'm going to start with just the first four verses. And this is called the Tower of Babel. Um, If you're not, if you, if you don't have a Bible, you can go to esv.org. It's a great place to follow along. I encourage you, though, whether, even though you're at home and I can't see what you're doing, I encourage you, open your Bible and follow along and listen to God's Word for us today. And as we approach God's Word, let us go to Him in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we do ask for Your presence. Though we are spread out physically right now, we know that we are united together as one body, as one group of people, your people, made one by your Spirit. And so by that same Spirit that unites us, we pray that you would speak to us now, that you would speak to us your words of wisdom, that we would hear from you, and more importantly, that those words would not return to you void, but that they would have a a change within our very hearts. Lord, help us to be open to that. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Help us to follow you more closely in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this is from um, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. And we say thanks be to God for his revelation of who he is to us. Now, the first thing we notice right off the bat is that um, a, a directional indicator. And if you've been with us so far, you might have picked up on this, but in in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, actually throughout the Bible, um, east is a bad direction. Now, a lot of that has to do with the the geography that Israel was um, situated in, and we'll look at a picture of geography here in in just a minute. But basically, the plains, and we can relate to it a lot here in the Pacific Northwest because we have a very similar geography, which is that you have ocean um, to the west, you have fertile plains, and then you have mountains, and then to the east, there is no moisture anymore. And uh, and, in Israel's case, it's very dramatic and actually becomes um, um, a lifeless desert. So anything east is, in Scripture, um, considered to be negative. If you, if you read again the, the, the creation story with Adam and Eve, what happens to them right after they are kicked out? They are kicked out to the east, 
Right after that, you have the story of Cain. And where does Cain end up wandering off to? The east. Again, Cain, not so great. Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, not great. East is traditionally a a pattern of moving away from God. And so the story is already set that these people are settling to the east. This is not going to be a good story. We can already tell from the previous stories, this is not going to go well for these people who are moving east because they are moving contrary um, literarily and in reality away from God. Now this area, um, it's nice when you read um, the, uh, the scholars about situations like this and they're all in agreement. There wasn't like a lot of controversy or anything that almost most scholars agree that the area that we're talking about is Sum- Sumer in southern Mesopotamia. And I pulled up a nice map for us to kind of look here, but um, you'll remember from your middle school uh, grade studies about culture and, and the history of humanity that Mesopotamia was called Meso, or in the middle of two rivers, Potamia meaning rivers. And so in between the Tigris and Euphrates is this, what some people call the cradle of life. In fact, there's been some National Geographic studies about this is one of the key places in our DNA that humanity originated from. It's one of the most ancient of cultures. And so we can read in our scripture here, um, they, there's some key words that kind of indicate that this is where we are talking about. Once, one is this plain in the land of Shinar where they're settling, but the other is kind of this information about them needing to make bricks. Um, stones were used in Israel. So if you go south down where Israel is or where Israel will be one day, there are plentiful stones everywhere. In fact, when you read the Old Testament about the people being in Canaan and in the land which would be futurely one day Israel, you hear about all these constructions of things being made out of stone because stones were an abundant materials. Not so in southern Mesopotamia. Around the fourth millennium of, the B, of uh, BC, before Jesus, there was this um, development of kiln fired brick. These bricks would be very expensive yet it would be more expensive to try to go to some other region and bring stone in. So if you saw a building, one, you're seeing a building made of brick in this time period, it is state of the art. It would be like building the Empire State Building for the first time before there were any other skyscrapers. This is how uh, techno, this is the most advanced technology of the day was these um, burn-fired bricks that they were using. And so they say to each other, we're going to use these to make a city and make a tower. Again, given the time period what we are talking about, this is pre, um, actually pre-everything. This is pre-urbanization. This is kind of the story in Genesis here of the first cities. And so at first, cities are not what we picture cities to be today. They were not, if you're going to spend the effort, the time, and the money to make these bricks and to make these buildings, they were going to be for public use. Primarily, you would not see people's homes made of these things. And so when they talk about a city, um, they are primarily talking about administrative buildings, granaries, and that most of these, this uh, complex would be connected to the temple that was dedicated to the particular god of the city or of the region. In in other words, this city that they were constructing could be more akin to describing a temple complex. And when they say, let's build a city, they're not saying, let's just have some, you know, some, let's get together and and, and live together. They're saying, let's build this massive construction, state-of-the-art, not something that the world has never seen before, Um, we are at the very cusp, the very beginning of people beginning to live in cities. And then the other prominent word in there, of course, is a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, in Hebrew, and you can read the rest of the Old Testament in your free time, but when you read the, the Old Testament, whenever, and actually in the New Testament as well, when they're talking about a tower, and Jesus mentions a tower in one of his, one of his teachings, the, those towers, 
uh, at least in the Hebrew language, it generically just meant any old tower. Most often these were towers that were used for defense or they were used as a watchtower. But in Mesopotamian culture, when they are talking about a tower, what they are saying is that this would be the most prominent building in the temple complex. And specifically, it was called a ziggurat. And I know you've heard of, of ziggurats before, but basically in Mesopotamian literature, ziggurats, or these towers, were described in their literature as buildings with, quote, their head in the heavens. In fact, I have a quote from um, an ancient Mesopotamian king. Um, I'm going to try to say his name, Warad Sin, king of Lhasa, who built the temple uh, Eskatai, and he said this, it says this in that literature, he made it as high as a mountain and made its head touch heaven. On account of this deed, the gods Nana and Ningal rejoiced. May they grant to him a destiny of life, a long reign, and a firm foundation. So we go back and we look at our scripture, we look at our verse in verse 4, and we see they're making a tower with its top in the heavens. And then we read Mesopotamian literature and we see this refer over and over and over again in various ways to these things that are made as high as mountains with their heads touching the heavens or touching the skies. And so we know that everything taken together, that what was going on is that in, in Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, the very beginning of urbanization, humanity decides that they are going to create a structure that is basically a man-made mountain. Compare that to Moses at Mount Sinai, the, and, or, or just look out your, your window at the mountain range that you're closest to here in the Pacific Northwest, and you see these monumental reminders of God's creation, of his power and his might. And then also, mountains historically um, especially back then, were seen as sacred places. One, they're a reminder of God's creation, but it is also on mountains, again, remember Mount Sinai, where you see an interaction between the divine and between um, humans. That there is something about mountains and their sacredness and their set-apartness, that that is where you have um, these in Scripture, these encounters with God, and also in just humanity in general, in our stories and in our legends, that mountains were a place where humanity was able to encounter the divine. And so what we've done, in, or less what the early Mesopotamians have done here, is they have tried to create an artificial mountain. Why would you try to create an artificial mountain? Because you're trying to create an artificial divine experience. Now, what we do know about these towers or these ziggurats was that while they resembled pyramids, and I think everyone kind of knows what a pyramid is just thanks to the, the excitement of the lore of Egyptian theology, but unlike pyramids, you know, pyramids where were, were hollowed out inside and they have all these chambers and things like that, um, um, but they were primarily supposed to be kind of these these things that the pharaohs or very wealthy people would use as their tombs that would kind of transport them off to the, uh, off to the underworld and all of that. I'm not going to get into Egyptian theology, but long story short, ziggurat, not that. Even though both of these are huge monumental constructions that, that humanity undertook at, at a nascent stage in our, our development, ziggurats had a different function. In fact, they had no inside at all. Uh, if you tried to go inside of a ziggurat, you'd just find filler. The ziggurat itself, the important part was the structure and the externality of it. Um, they were dedicated to particular deities, and deities of the region might have several ziggurats dedicated to them in different cities. And in fact, cities might have multiple ziggurats, but they would usually have one main one, for their primary patron deity, the deity of the nation or the deity of that city. And archaeologists have discovered nearly 30 of these in that region alone. And the main feature of these ziggurats is a stairway or ramp that leads to the very top. And on the top of the ziggurat, 
was basically a one-bedroom apartment. That sounds weird, but at the very top was a room. And in that room um, was basically a small room at the top with a bed and a table. There would be food left there and things like that, because the idea was um, that the God or the deity would hang out and live there, that you were making a room or a house for the God to hang out hang out for. The, the ziggurat itself didn't play any role whatsoever in the rituals. Uh, you know, you read some about that in um, South America. They had very similar structures, and at the top of them, they would do their sacrifices. Not so in this case. Um, if you read the names of the ziggurats, they kind of give away what the real purpose behind these things were. Here's a couple of names from, from ancient Mesopotamian literature. Um, for ziggurats, for these, these temple or these tower-like structures. One was the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. How about this one? Temple which links heaven and earth. Temple of the stairway to pure heaven. And the stairway here, this, this word is used to describe in mythology that word stairway wasn't necessarily a literal stairway. That word basically meant a link or the way, whatever way that trans-dimensional way would be, it was the way in which a messenger of the gods moved between the divine realm, the earth, and the netherworld, that there is some sort of way, some sort of connection between these realms that allows for travel. And this is what they were calling these things. At the very top of the ziggurat was what they called the gate of the gods or the entrance to the heavenly abode. I don't know if you're a sci-fi person or anything like that, but um, one of the Marvel movies that, that um, I've watched them, I enjoy them. One of the Marvel movies that I like is, is it's based on Thor. And Thor is a comic book character, but he's also a Norse god. And in that, they have this rainbow bridge. And this was the Norse mythology way of trying to communicate the same concept, is that there has got to be some way in which the divine god or gods, some way in which though that divinity can enter into the realm of man can enter into the realm of humanity. And they could describe it with a bunch of different words in a bunch of different ways, but it was kind of like the rainbow bridge. It was a way, a portal. It was a gate to the gods in which it would provide a way for the gods to teleport or to enter into our realm or into our reality. And so the concept, the idea was, they're setting up this entire situation so that um, there is a way in which that God can boop, pop up right there at the top of that ziggurat through this mystical gate and be there. And then the God would hang out in his room and come down the stairs, receive the worship and the adoration from everybody that was there. And then the idea is that the God would be grateful for all of this construction work that they had done. And since a God was there, that God would then be able to descend, receive gifts and worships from his people, and also then pour out blessings upon all the people that were there. In summary, what we're talking about in these first verses is a, a massive temple complex. Um, a temple complex with, at the very heart of it, a ziggurat, designed to make it convenient for the God to come down to his temple. The temple was down there at the bottom of the ziggurat on the side there. Um, to come down to receive worship from people and bless them. I don't know if you did this when you were when you were growing up or if you've ever done this. I actually I don't this might be cruelty to animals. I'm not sure. Um, but when I was growing up, I would go to this camp every summer and we uh, we had snack time right after rest time. Wise people, those those camp directors. But after that rest time where you would read a book or take a nap or just be calm, you'd have store time. And so we would go to the store um, and apparently every bug in the area knew that that little shack was where we kept 
the sodas and the sugars and the, uh, I'm sure they had some healthy options there that I never partook of, but ice creams and things like that. So as a result, yellow jackets would, um, which are basically extreme bees, would, would be there on a regular basis, kind of flying around, especially the trash cans where you would crush your can and throw away your soda, your soda can, or as we call it in the South, the Coke can. Um, but what we would do as kids is uh, you get a plastic bottle and you cut off the top of it and you leave some coke down in there and you flip it over so that it's very easy for the, the, the yellow jacket to, to get down in there and get close to that sweet coke syrup. But as we know, for our own bodies and for uh, insects as well, coke means death. And so as they would get down in there into that coke liquid, uh, it would it would syrup up their wings and they wouldn't be able to get out. And so you would leave those around and you would come back maybe a few hours later before dinner and there would be hundreds of these things just filling up this trap that was designed to get the yellow jacket to come down. Friends, this is exactly what the people are doing in our, our scripture for today. They are designing a God trap. Their goal and I know that if, you, if you read it, you're reading along in the, in the Bible storybook that it's called A Giant Staircase to Heaven. And that kind of, just the title alone kind of gives you this image like people were trying to build their way up to God. In, in fact, it was actually the reverse. People weren't trying to build their way up to God. They were trying to bring God down to their level. They were trying to manipulate God. They were trying to get God to come to them on their own terms at an artificial mountain and to, and to basically force them through these manipulations, through this elaborate God trap, to get blessings from their gods. And what we see is that the ziggurat was the most powerful representation to the Babylonian religious system. This is a brand new religious system. It is a system that is actually a fundamental turning point for humanity as a whole. Sociologists study this moment. It is a moment where humanity in the past were worshiping forces of nature. In fact, if you read the Genesis account, and I encourage you, if, if you missed any of the stories um, and the scripture up to this moment, go back and listen to these. This is an incredible sermon series, and Pastor Tommy is, 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 is knocking it out of the park, explaining to us really the real meaning and meat behind these stories. But part of the reasoning behind Genesis um, of telling the creation story is to say that these forces of nature, which humanity in the early uh, nascent years of humanity that we worshipped, um, and there's, there's archaeological evidence for this, that, that at first humans would just worship wind. They would worship rain. They would worship storms or the sun or just a mountain itself. And what the creation story says is that all of these massive forces that are controlling the tides, that are causing day and night, that these forces that seem incalculable to you, God, Yahweh, is the one that created those forces. And so here is this pivotal moment where humanity is moving and they are, they're putting behind some of this worship of nature and now they are taking a moment where they anthropomorphize God. God, for the first time in human history, is being given human characteristics. And it's called anthropomorphism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. But um, it's a significant shift in religious thought. And just to kind of explain what anthropomorphism is, anthropomorphism is basically giving you human attributes to a non-human thing or person. And, and, and an easy example that, <laughs> to think of is um, toys. So I don't know, you've, you might likely seen this. In fact, I, I, I know a student who's going to be heartbroken when I say what I'm about to say about this, but you've seen the movie Toys, right? The Toy Story. And in the movie Toy Story, you have these toys that come to life. And that is basically the definition of anthropomorphism, is that you have something that is clearly not human, right? If you, if you picked up a toy, I wish I had brought a toy in for you to see. Uh, if, I'll show you a picture of one. If, if, if you have a toy, that toy is not human. It's not alive. And this is the part where my, my student who loves Toy Story is probably crying. It, there is no 
yikes, magic within that toy that when you look away from the toy that it comes alive. And yet humans have this kind of, I would say, like built-in thing to make everything like us that I catch myself sometimes when I'm cleaning up the toys. Um, the other day I threw one of the toys, not like mean, I wasn't like being aggressive to the toy, but in my mind, it's a toy. It's not a real life person, but I threw it and I felt like, yikes, I threw that toy a little too aggressively. And now thanks to Toy Story in my head, that toy is probably crying in a corner underneath the bed where it wants to be played with with a child. None of that is true. It's a great movie and that mo those movies are great, but none of that is true. A toy has no more human characteristics other than the things that we kind of built into it, but in no way is it a human. Friends, the same way that we are different from inanimate, created creatures that we make for our children to play with, the same degree of difference, of reality, between you and a child's play toy is the same degree between us, maybe even more so, probably more so, between us and God. In other words, God is not human. God doesn't have human characteristics. God um, is not capricious. He is not thoughtless. He is not someone who changes his whims or who can be manipulated. God is completely and totally other. He is a completely different classification. But what we see in human history is that as Mesopotamia built these mass, began to build cities and urbanization began to happen, and that began to happen primarily for security and safety, that the people that God had created decided, rather than spreading and dispersing and filling the earth, instead, we're going to huddle together, we're going to build these cities, and we're going to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. And not only that, we're going to start talking about God in terms as though he is just like one of us. And you see the the, the giant boundary crossing that humanity has taken. And they try to start ascribing to a God that is completely and totally other. They try to box him in and to put him into a place in which they can understand him. Romans 1, 21 through 23 describes it like this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what we see is that this actually becomes ubiquitous. This new way, this is how transformative this moment is in the history of humanity, that this becomes basically how all these new religions follow in line with what the Mesopotamians have done here, with this making God into our image and giving him human characteristics. You see it later in the, in, in the Greeks, you see it in the Romans, you see it in Egypt, you see it in Norse mythology as well. Um, it becomes ubiquitous, this idea that gods are like humans, that gods have needs, and that if humans worship them, and, and respond to the gods, then the gods are getting something that they need, and therefore they will respond and do what humans want them to do. God says something completely and totally opposite. He says that I am wholly other. I am holy, holy, holy. I am not a person. Anything that you see in me that reminds you of yourself, that's actually because you were created in my image. In other words, if you're like, well, God is a creator, God, we're also created. It's because we were created in God's image. The same way that we create those inanimate toys, they have some attributes that we give them to them, but in no way are those toys humans. In the same way, in no way are we on the level of God. God is completely and totally independent of who we are. He has no need of us. And that sounds harsh. But the truth is, is that God is completely in a totally different category. And as we kind of place ourselves in the scripture and we see this monumental moment that takes place, we ask ourselves, how in what ways do we try to make God or shape him or convince him to do the things that we want 
him to do. And here are some, some items that might be indicators that your relationship with God is less about wanting to know who he is and have a relationship with a being that is completely and totally beyond you and more about trying to get God to do the things that you want him to do for your purpose and for your will. Um, one is that if when you are praying, you, you find that your focus is actually more on the prayers than on the person who answers them. In other words, if you are having prayer time with God and you find that your prayer time is filled with wants and needs and not um, listening to God, asking God to change your heart and focusing on, on who he is, that might be an indicator that you have a God or a version of God that you have created in your own image that is there to supply things for you. Another is deal making. I don't know if you've ever done this before. I've caught myself doing it. Um, God, if, if, I, if you just give me this one thing, then I will fill in the blank, whatever it may be. Another sign might just be neglecting to have prayer time, neglecting to reading God's revelation about himself. God, as opposed to these versions of gods that the Mesopotamians have created, God is very clear about who he is, what his expectations are, and has gone to dramatic lengths to reveal himself to you. So whether you're a believer who's join, joining me today and you're here every Sunday, or whether this is your first time, you just happen to be looking over somebody's shoulder and watching this, friends, open the Bible yourself. Go to Jesus yourself and listen to him. Listen to God's revelation about who he is and start there rather than starting with your preconceptions about who God should be and what he should do for you. So this is a monumental moment in the history of humanity. And the question is, is what is God going to do about it? And so that's kind of where we turn now to the next verses where God intervenes. The Lord, in verse 5, came down. Now remember, with Noah, it was sin, sin, sin increasing, and to the point that human nature is so corrupt that he says in Genesis 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen, that's a bad scenario, right? Humanity has come to the point that all that is on their mind all the time is evil, and so God intervenes in that moment. Again, go back and listen to that sermon last week from Pastor Tommy. God intervenes. He rescues that moment by wiping it all away and starting fresh again. But we see something very similar here that no longer is it that humanity is being corrupted, getting sinful and being, you know, their inner nature is bad. We already know that that's the situation. Instead, it is now their view of the divine. It is their view of God that is being distorted and twisted. And as we have said, a significant line has been crossed, and humanity as a whole is headed towards complete and total self-delusionment, denial, and destruction. If, if God, and we believe this, that God is home, that our truest home was there in the garden, and that we long to be back to to that one day. What we see happening in our text today is an incredible delusionment, a remaking of physical mountains into human ones, and a remaking of God into our own image. It is an incredible, terrible moment that humanity is moving further east in a significant way away from God. God intervenes. He comes down, um, and he intervenes with humanity as they have crossed this threshold and begin to move out into unexplored territory and begin to actually let the delusionment send them further and further away from God and more and more towards ultimately destruction. Um, and if you read the original, if you, if you have your Bibles open, I really hope, hope that you do. If you have your Bibles open and you're looking, we're looking at Genesis. I'm about to read the next verses, but what I want to point out is that right here is, is, the, is the crux of of the, uh, of the entire passage. And so what you, you see literarily is, is basically um, these parallel verses. So you've got verse 1 over here, and then you've got verse 
six over here, and you've got these parallels, um, the, the intro that's building, and then the echo that's afterwards. And as an ancient Near East person who primarily is learning orally, not with images or, or writings, um, you would see, you would hear this in the actual language. It would go, it would say, you would hear boom, 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 and then you would hear this, this moment or this pivot, and then you would hear echoes of the first verses. And so you would know, it would, it, it's a literary technique that would drive and draw you the same way that if you heard audibly this, hey, 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 here is the main point. Echo, 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 echo. That's, the, that's what it is in writing. And so what is the main point? It, it's so dramatic in the text. Um, I'm, I hope I'm communicating it to you. It's this moment right here in verse 4 that says, The Lord came down. The Lord intervened. The Lord rescued. The Lord showed up. And when he shows up, we see that he intervenes in the plans of humanity to go down this dreadful path that they have embarked on. They are attempting to use the language that God gave to name creatures and to name plants and to name creation, and they were supposed to fill the earth and use that language to name, and instead they have used the language, as our text says, that is the uniting thing that they have used to oppose God and who he is and who he has proclaimed himself to be. They wanted to be the center of the known world. Um, they called their, their primary city Babylon. And in their language, in the language of Mesopotamia, Babel in their language meant gate or residence of the gods. They were going to make the gods come to them. And instead, what we see in the Hebrew scripture, which is proclaiming the reality or the truth, is that in Hebrew, that same word um, is used, BBL or Babel, is mean is mean to communicate that they are actually confused. They are, their minds are distorted. They are in disillusionment about what the reality really is. These people are trying to find their strength and their security in cities rather than God. And so God's response is to scatter them. They wanted to avoid being dispersed over the face of the earth. And the result is that they end up being dispersed over the face of the earth. It seems that nothing that God does can stop humanity, can stop us from wandering, from rebelling against him, and from doing everything, whether it's our own natures or whether it's trying to tear God down, that there seems to be nothing that God can do to derail us. There is nothing that can stop us from doing the, the sin and the evil that we want to do. But God intervenes again. He intervenes by dispersing and by creating multiple languages so that humanity cannot bind together in opposition to God. But he also intervenes because a second time, even after he intervenes by dispersing, he intervenes again. We'll see more about this next week. By, from these new nations that are created, from one of those nations comes a man named Abram. And from him, he promises very soon in just a few chapters that he is going to bless all the nations. And so in other words, the picture here is, is, is of a heavenly father that has seen his children go desperately astray. And he comes down and he disrupts their plans to basically hurt themselves. And he says, I'm not just going to disperse you. I'm actually going to put into motion a plan that is going to bless you abundantly through this man named Abram, through this tribe named Israel. In fact, from one of these languages that I've just created, from one of these new nations from this very region in Mesopotamia, will come a man through which God will bless all nations. And what is set into motion with Abraham, boom, 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 hits the greatest pivot, the greatest ark of all time when God comes down, when God intervenes, when, as our scripture says, the Lord came down. And we see that he, a man that is born as the son of Abraham 
to be a blessing to the nations is Jesus. And that God comes not because of anything that we've done, not because we built the right temple or we manufactured, tried to manufacture a spiritual moment by creating an artificial mountain or because we performed the right actions or the right prayers to get God to do what we wanted to do. But Jesus comes down because of God's never-ending love for us so that we might finally come home again. Now, as a part of that restoration, we actually see a reverse of the Tower of Babel on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has died and been resurrected, he pours out his spirit upon his people, and we see actually a new uniter. In our passage here in the Old Testament, the uniter is the language, and they are united, what? Against God and to create a false reality. In Acts, in the book of Acts, what we see is now community is defined by having the Spirit of God. That our unity brothers and sisters in Christ, is defined that we share the same spirit and that that unity goes over even the division that is caused by languages so that we are all one family again, brought home to God, able to communicate clearly with one another for what reason? So that all tribes, nations, and tongues, every language may praise God for what he has done in this redemptive story. God intervenes. He intervenes despite every single time we veer towards destruction. Our security is not in cities. Our security is not in government. It's not in military power. It's not in trying to create a reality in which God does what we tell him to do. Our security is in the one who created the heavens and the earth. And he has done so in the past, clearly and dramatically, and he will continue to do so in our own lives and in history today as well. Friends, I encourage you to join me next week as we spend some time together looking at how this is going to play out with Abram how God's intervention with that man and his family and the response that Abram has to God's willingness to come down to him um, and how that continues to point us towards Jesus, that ultimate pivot moment in history where God comes down and rescues us. Friends, I appreciate our time together today. Um, as we conclude our time, I do want to do something that we do. We often profess our faith together, and um, we call that our profession of faith. And today, our question that I, I'm ho I hope that you'll read this at home out loud, if you're alone or as a family together, uh, is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, number seven. And the question is this, what is God? What is God? And the answer that we all believe together is God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. At the very end of the story, it says this in the storybook Bible. You see, God knew however high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase. It was a person. As you go forward from here, may the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit be with you all until we can gather again that day where we see each other face to face. Amen and amen. Thank you.